you have your Bible, please turn with me to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. Last week we closed up chapter 1 examining the Benedictus of Zechariah, that wonderful song where he blesses the Lord for the grand realities that he now has knowing, knows is coming to pass with the birth of his son John the Baptist. He knows that with this child, this forerunner, that means something is just around the corner. And that is the birth of the Messiah himself. The birth of the Son of God who will come to rescue his people from their greatest enemies. Oh, how little Zechariah could fully understand just the depth and magnitude of what Christ would indeed rescue and save us from. Now this chapter today, we turn to one of, if not the most well-known part, probably of the gospel account by both believers and non-believers alike as we look to the birth narrative of Christ. Luke's account, uh, which makes up pretty much all of Luke chapter 2, is probably the most well-known account, even though there are aspects of Matthew's gospel that often linger, like the wise men and things like that, that really carry into it. But for the most part, it's Luke's gospel account that, that, that is most often appealed to when we think about Christmas time and Advent season. And one of the great dangers when we come to a text like Luke 2 or, or some of these others is our familiarity. We, we've heard them so many times that we almost just kind of expect what we know what we're going to hear. Right? We know what to hear, we know what's happens. Oh yeah, he's born, that's awesome. And we just kind of move on. And one of the things that I want us to do, and I think it's so important is, you know, oftentimes there's a danger in getting too myopic or too narrow-sighted on the details because we can miss the forest for the trees. But in a story like this, in a birth narrative of Jesus, where we all know the story very well, I think it's important that we dig into the details. Because the details of this grand story tell us so much, not only about our Savior, but about the glories and the realities of God and history and what God is doing and, 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 and detailing to us through this story of the birth of His Son, Jesus Christ. And today, as we begin our journey examining this birth narrative, which we're going to be looking at over the next three weeks, uh, verses 1 through 7. Today we'll look at the historical context of Christ's birth. Next week we'll look at the location of Christ's birth. And then after that we'll be looking at Christ's birth itself. And so that's kind of where we're going as we dig into the details of Christ's birth narrative. And so today let's look to verses 1 through 3 as we're going to look at the historical context and see what this teaches us about the sovereignty of God and the history of man. So verses 1 through 3. Of Luke 2. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You know, as a, as a historian myself, I, I have a deep affinity for Dr. Luke. Because Luke is tedious and empirical in the way that he puts forth the story of Jesus. He carefully gathers historical facts and he, he places them together so that his readers then and today 
can be absolutely certain of the truths that are found in this gospel account. Remember, that was his purpose in writing. So that you may be certain of these things. So he grounds them in absolute history. Real people, real places, real events, real history. Luke says this is no fairy tale. This is no Aesop's fable. This is no good moral story to help you be encouraged in life. This is truth. This is fact. This is history. He tells us in chapter 1 that this occurs in the days of King Herod. Here we see that Augustus Caesar was the emperor. We see that Quirinius was the governor of Syria. Look at how he's going to begin chapter 3 in verses 1 through 2 of chapter 3. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Iterea and Trachonitis and Lysanias tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. So here, he'll be picking back up with John the Baptist, which he left off growing in the end of chapter 1. But notice how clearly he places you in that moment of history when our story picks up with John the Baptist's ministry. I mean, he gives you multiple frames of references in order for you to go, oh, this is the period of history when this happened. These aren't made up names. We can go and look through the annals of history and we can see all of these individuals, when they existed, where they existed, where they ruled, how they ruled. We can see all of this. Luke is not trying to hide anything. Really, he's he's being about as bold as you can be to say, this is exactly when these things happened. When, where, how, and whom. He gives us all of those great things as a great empirical writer would. He writes to Theophilus with the excitement of any historian. And many of you um, who come to figure out a, maybe a fact about something that you've never known before, there's an excitement to want to tell someone of the discovery that you've come across. And Luke writes with this kind of excitement to want to show that our faith in Jesus is not rooted in empty believism. It's not rooted in an empty faith. It's not rooted in superstitious speculation. No, but it is firmly rooted in historical truth and evidence. Everything that we believe about Christ is grounded in the reality of what he did in history. That's remarkable. That's remarkable. That God would enter into history to make certain the things that he calls us to believe. Yet it's important to note that Luke has not just given us all of these details just to argue for the historical reality of Jesus. He's done that. That's that's definitely one of his purposes. But it's also because he wants to to be very clear in something that he is teaching regarding the nature of history itself. He wants us to understand something very important about history. Not just that our belief in Christ is a historical reality, but what do all of these historical details, what's Luke wanting us to say about the nature of history itself? And what Luke does very implicitly behind every one of these historical details that he fills his gospel account with, 
is to declare to each and every one of us that God is no spectator of history. God does not sit on the sidelines. He's not in heaven watching it all play out from a distance, looking forward to the next episode. He's not a blind watchmaker who simply wound it all up in the beginning and just now lets it tick away on its own. Totally distant, totally hands-off, seeing what merely these these agent beings that he created are going to do tomorrow. It's not our God. Now Luke is demonstrating through all of these historical details that all of human history is being governed and sovereignly guided by God to bring about the fulfillment of His eternal will. Now you may be wondering, what does that word sovereignty even mean? That's a good question. We use it a lot. And that's one of the great dangers of what I call words that fudge. Right? We use, we throw out theological words a lot. We say things, oh, he's a spiritual person. This is heaven. Well, what does that even mean? This is one of the beauties that a chaplain's helped me on. Is I'll say a lot of Christianese things, and I have soldiers be like, I don't even know what you're talking about. It's like, thank you. And so I want to be very clear. You're going to be hearing this word sovereignty and sovereign a lot today. So, so what does it mean that God is sovereign? So I wanted to kind of put up a little definition here so that we can understand what this means. The sovereignty of God is the fact That he is Lord over creation, where he perfectly rules all things according to his eternal purposes. That is to say, there is not a single moment of time, individual person, or entire nation throughout history that has not been under the ruling governance of God. Everything is under his ruling governance. Nothing is outside of him. This is why God can guarantee with absolute assurance that every promise he's ever given will come to pass and why every word he's ever spoken will never return void. Why? Because he governs history in such a way that it will always come to pass and indeed never return void. The main point of our message today this morning as we examine these opening verses of Luke 2 is that the birth of Jesus provides the greatest demonstration that all of human history has been sovereignly governed by God for the accomplishment of his purposes the glory of his name, and the good of his people. All of human history is being sovereignly guided by God for the accomplishment of his purposes, that's his will, the glory of his name, and the good of his people. And we see that right here clearly in these opening verses. How is it that God governs all of human history? Well, there are three things This text shows us to demonstrate how it is that he goes about governing all of creation. First is that God is sovereign over all time. 
He is sovereign over all time. Look at these, this opening statement that Luke gives here. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. Well, what days? Right? Well, the days of Roman occupation, the Roman occupation of Israel. And this was a time of absolute deep frustration for the Israelites. There had been many attempts for them to try to rebel and revolt against this Roman oppression that they had been over uh, for just over about 180 years at this point when it comes to the Romans. But before that, it was the Greeks, and before that, the Persians, and before that, the Babylonians. For 400 years, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, that four-figured statue that you see in Daniel chapter 2 has come and been an oppressive force over Israel. And Rome was really the pinnacle of it. They were tired, they were wore out, and they had, they had time after time tried to raise up and bring about revolts. And one of them was very successful. It was called the Maccabean Revolt. It's where we get the, the story of Hanukkah from that came out of when the Maccabees came and, and rose up against Roman and for a, Romans and for a while had basically took, taken them out. Uh, before ultimately the Romans would come back in and, and conquer and bring them back under it as a vassal state. Now, remember, not only was this a time of foreign oppression for Israel, but God has not spoken for 400 years, the last being to the prophet Malachi, who had promised them that there would be a Messiah who would come. A refiner who would come to purify the land and bring salvation once and for all and judgment upon the enemies of God's people. Now, we know from where we've been going through that God has spoken, but that's only to a very small handful that are aware of what's going on. The rest of Israel is still remain in, is left in darkness. They are still under oppression. They do not know when the Messiah is going to come. They're yearning for Him, longing for Him, praying for Him to come to finally free them from this Roman oppression. These are those days of which Luke is speaking of. Spiritual and physical darkness over the land as they are under the oppression of this enemy. And with no word from God as what to happen, what will happen next. You know, have you ever asked questions? Well, I know you've asked these questions. Lord, why now? What's up with your timing? Or, or where are you? I could really use you right now. Right now would be the perfect time, God. We've all asked that. I don't understand your timing, God. The timing just doesn't make sense to me. Is there a delay between heaven and earth? In many ways, that was precisely the question that many have considered regarding the question of Christ's birth. Why then? Why not earlier? Why not later? A thousand years before Jesus was born, Israel was at the pinnacle of its history. 
It's golden age under the reigns of David and ultimately Solomon. I mean, it was the, the principal country within the Mediterranean world. This small land that, that was so vibrant and powerful that, that we read of kings and, and queens coming from the, the, the nations of the earth to come and to seek and learn from the wisdom of Solomon. This is a golden age for Israel. And if you remember back to the Abrahamic covenant, which was promised in Genesis 12, given in Genesis 15, and ratified in Genesis 17, God, when he established the nation of Israel through their patriarch Abraham, through this opening covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, he had given Abraham three very specific promises within that covenant. First, he was going to give them a land, right? The land of Canaan. Secondly, he said that his offspring would be numbered as the sands of the sea. And then thirdly, and most importantly, that one of his offspring would come out through him and be a blessing to all the nations. There's three promises. Land, large amount of people, and an offspring that would bring blessing to all the nations. By the time Solomon came to rule, we see from Scripture that the physical aspects of this promise had already been fulfilled. At the end of Joshua's conquest, God had given Israel all the land that he promised. Here, Joshua chapter 21, verse 43. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it and they settled there. And as far as the numerical growth of Israel, this is what we read at the beginning of Solomon's reign in 1 Kings 4. 1 Kings 4.20 Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. So here we see already they're under the golden age of Solomon. The land's been given. Their number has been established. So surely the Messiah is right around the corner. It's got to be. It's got to be Solomon's son. It's got to be just the next one coming up, right? That was the thought, but we know that's not what happened. It went the complete opposite direction. With right after Solomon's death, because of the sins of David and the sins of Solomon, we see the nation fall apart because the sins of his son are just multiplied. Israel split into two, the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. Most of the northern kings just go bad from the start and pretty much stay bad. So eventually they are swept away into Assyrian captivity. The southern kingdom of Judah hangs on a little bit longer. There's a few more righteous kings that go there, but ultimately they go the same way as the north and are eventually swept away by Babylon. This, this is shocking, right? It doesn't even seem like it would make sense. Two of the three promises are done. That they're good. God is being faithful. Everything seems great. The time is going to be right around the corner. And instead of that happening, God lets Israel steep into sin and then lets them remain in oppression for the next 400 years. Why, God? What's up with your timing? 
But you see, God has done something like this before. If you remember back to that covenant made with Abraham in Genesis 15, 13, there was another promise that he tells Abraham in light of those beautiful promises he gives. This is what he said to him in verse 13 and 14 of Genesis 15. The Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Now remember, when was this promise first fulfilled? Egypt. When God delivered Israel out of Egypt, where they had served and lived in slavery for how many years? 400, 430 to be exact, but 400 years. They were there under bondage and Egyptian captivity. Now, remember how they got there? God used Joseph, whose brothers meant for him to die and were evil and sought to sell him into slavery. That God used their evil for good by getting Joseph not only into Egypt, but ultimately having through his providence, have Joseph raised up to being the second in command, which would ultimately save Israel from what? Famine. So Israel has been brought into Egypt to be sustained and saved by God. But over time, what happens? They grow numerically, just like God promised that they would. And ultimately, as Pharaoh's change, they get now brought into slavery. So what was used for a blessing, God allows them to be turned into slavery, which will in turn turn out to be a greater blessing. But the timing seems crazy, right? Why not just go straight from Joseph, things are great, people have been saved, to go on and keep on moving to the promised land? Why in the world would God let them be slaves for 400 years? Why wait? Why delay? Why, God? And what we see in those 400 years, what we see from the Abrahamic covenant is we see that the Abrahamic covenant gave physical promises that were actually pointing to greater spiritual realities. The true land that God was promising for those who would ultimately come through the line of Abraham was not a physical one, but an eternal promised land. The number of the sands of the sea was not just for one ethnic group, but for a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. A number which the book of Revelation describes as a multitude which no man could number. And the greater son, Jesus, that offspring, would bring forth an eternal salvation that would bring and save a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, being a blessing to all nations. And so that 400 years there of slavery in Egypt also was pointing to a greater future oppression to come which would lead to a greater Moses coming and delivering his people into a greater exodus. Types and shadows all throughout the history that God is perfectly ordaining and weaving together to serve to bring about his son. God had came himself through his son not to provide a mere temporal salvation, like Moses did, 
which would lead people out of physical slavery, but rather he came to bring us an eternal salvation, an eternal redemption, which would break the bondage of sin and Satan and death, leading us into an eternal promised land where we could never again fall back into death and oppression. And that's an incredible parallel. But once again, why? What is up with this timing? Why, why not just make it happen, God? Why not just bring it about? Why wait? Why allow this oppression and things to happen? At any time, you can intervene and do whatever you please, God. So why wait? What is up with your timing? Why do you point and direct time the way that you do? Now, is this because God is merely a great responder? That he can only act when man affords him the ability? Is it because he can only look through the corridors of time, which would not make him eternal because he's outside of time? But does he have to look through and say, oh, that's going to be my spot. This is where I'm going to pick it. Oh, finally, they're going to let me come in and act. No, beloved, that, that's not what the Bible says at all about God. God decrees the end from the beginning. And every time in between, listen to what the Bible says about God's absolute sovereignty over time. Ecclesiastes 3.14 I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear Him. Isaiah 46.10 Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done saying my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Everything God has ordained within time will come to pass. He's the Alpha, the Omega, and everything in between has been established based upon His timing for it to happen. And so, this 400 year oppression that He has caused the people of Israel to remain in, this divine delay has a very established purpose. Every time God delays, it is for a purpose. Just like every time God acts, it's for a purpose. And His delay is an action for a greater eternal purpose. His choice to wait was for the purpose of a greater revelation of His glory. Now you may say, what, how in the world does God waiting or delaying action actually serve to greater or more greatly manifest His glory? How does His waiting serve to make known more of His glory instead of just doing it? Well, I, I think there's actually a very clear text in the Bible that explains to us why God chooses to wait and delay the way that he does. It's a story you've all heard of. John chapter 11. And the story of how Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. The pinnacle sign that John gives of the deity of Christ. I am the resurrection and the life. But there's a very important passage here. That shows us, gives us a glimpse into why God chooses to delay 
in his absolute control over time. John 11, verse 5 through 6. Jesus has just heard the news that Lazarus has fallen ill. We read, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. He waited. He hears that Lazarus is sick. And he loves Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, sisters and brother. He loves them. He loves them. He hears that one of them is sick. He knows the other two are probably scared to death over what could happen to their brother. And in his wonderful, amazing love, he waits. He waits. He could go right now and heal him. He could go and act that very moment. But he waits two days. To the point where we know through the Spirit he recognizes that Lazarus has died. And then he goes. He waits till his friend who he loves dies until that moment when he knows those two sisters are going to be mourning over the loss of their brother and they're going to experience pain that that he could have prevented. He could have. He could have prevented that moment of emotional pain that they had to go through. He could have prevented that death from happening. He could have at any moment. Martha knows it. That's why she's going to run out and confront him about it. But he waits because he loves them. What? Why did God delay? Why did all of this happen? Why did Jesus not go? And we actually see in the very verse before, verse 5, verse 4, why it was that Jesus waited and how he loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. John eleven four. 4. But when Jesus heard it, He said, the illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. But it did lead to death. Only temporally. He waited because how many people had Jesus healed at this point? Lots of them. Many people saw him as a healer. That was no issue. He couldn't beat people off fast enough because they knew he was a healer. But Jesus was using this sign, that this sign was being set up for God, this very purpose, this very event, for the purpose to say, He's so much more than a healer. He is the resurrection and the life itself. He waits so that His glory of who He truly is as the Son of God can be made manifest. And that's how He so loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Because what that text demonstrates us is the way that God demonstrates His love most to us is not by acting when we first think we need Him. He doesn't love us in the way that we think where it's like, oh, I have a little bit of pain. You need to be a divine butler and come and help me right now. God's love is made most manifest in His choice 
to reveal his glory to his people. And when he waits, he does so for a greater manifestation of his glory that without the waiting could not have come. And that's how he loves you. By saying, yeah, you're going to have to experience some pain. You're going to have to go through things. But it will all work out for your good. Because through this, you are going to see me in my glory in a way that without it, you would not. I love you too much just to act right away. I love you too much just to act right away. Because you're going to miss something so important about me in the waiting. Why did God allow Israel to remain in bondage to Egypt for 400 years? Could God have just let them keep on rolling with after Joseph and moving on? Yeah, of course he could. But what happened at the end of that 400 years? Plagues, powerful, mighty. God comes down with a mighty hand and, 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 lay, and, and makes nothing out of Pharaoh and the Egyptian gods. He shames them. He brings... Uh, just absolute judgment upon them so that when Israel is led out into the wilderness, there's only one proper reason. God did it. There's only one person who gets the glory. No one gets to say, man, the patriarchs are just awesome. Look at how they just marched right on through the land and they got us where we are. No, God gets the glory. All of it. And he does so in multiple ways. Not only is God getting the glory in the mighty salvation of his people, but he's getting the glory in his mighty judgment against the wicked. He waited so that his people could see the fullness of his love through the manifestation of his glory when he brought nothing, the greatest emperor in the world at that time, Pharaoh, and brings forth them to life through his powerful hand who splits oceans, who rains down hailstones, who changes water to blood. This God is the one who saves and leads and governs his people and makes himself known to us by the way he acts in history and the timing in which he chooses to act. Once again now, God has come and he's waited for 400 years to bring about an even greater deliverance this time. This time, rather than merely raising up another prophet, he will come himself as a helpless babe to be born of a virgin mother, to be raised by a carpenter, born in a little town in the middle of nowhere, on the fringes of the greatest empire in world history at that point. Why? Because he'll get the glory. God will get the glory. As we study history, we see everything God has been doing in those 400 years to prepare the world for the coming of his son and the inauguration of his kingdom. In other words, where Israel saw oppression and silence, God was working. God was working in the midst of the silence. God was working in the midst of the darkness. For 400 years, empires were changing around. Persia conquers Babylon. Greece and Alexander the Great conquer the Persians. And then the Romans rise up and they overtake the Greeks. 
And all of this is working to, to fortify and establish a, a single language, Koine Greek, which would come from Alexander. It would establish a singular road system and, and, and a governance by which those road systems would be kept peaceful and maintained. It was called the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. God in those 400 years is shifting and tearing down nations and establishing things and bringing order and peace and bringing a universal language which all of the world at that point would share in that part of the Middle East and going westward and eastward. All of that would share this language, have a singular road system under a single form of governance. And God brings all of that to pass for his son to be born into that moment. And what will all of those things going on around in the Roman Empire do for the kingdom itself? It'll make a full highway available for the gospel to go forth. Hallelujah. The road systems will be established. A language that, that can be universally shared for everyone to hear the gospel is all being laid forth. The foundation of God's plan are being laid in the midst of the silence. So even when you don't see God acting, even when you can't hear Him, even when it seems like, why are you waiting? No, God is working in the waiting. He's always working. He's always tearing things up, lifting them down, moving it all around, shifting, shifting, shaping, doing all of it, even when it's silent, even when it seems like the timing's not right. God is working. God had perfectly orchestrated all of history in such a way that when the Messiah would come, his message and his people would find the necessary conditions to advance his kingdom and his message across the known world. Beloved, the day of Christ's birth was a day planned in eternity before the creation of the world. Indeed, the whole universe with untold light years of space and billions of galaxies was created and made glorious for that very day. When the very one who created the earth would now be born into it. As Paul writes in Galatians 4, 4 and 5, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons, when the fullness of time had come. How can you say that? Because God's sovereign over it. Every minute and second, God sovereignly governs to bring about His perfect plan and timing. No matter how dark it may seem, or how long it seems to take for His hand to show up, God is always on time. And the only way that you can say with absolute assurance that it, 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 the only way that you can say with absolute assurance that God is always on time, He's never late, He's never too early, is because He controls it. He controls time. When Habakkuk questioned God's timing, this is what God had to say to him. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 3-4. through four. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. In other words, it will come right when it's supposed to, Habakkuk. Habakkuk wanted it right now because what had he just been told in chapter 1? For behold, I am doing something in your day. 
that even if I were told, telling you about it, you wouldn't believe me. And so Habakkuk goes, well, when's it going to happen? I want to know. God says, wait and watch. Wait and watch. And how do you, how do, how do, you do that? How do you live a life where you're waiting and watching for God to act and to be faithful to fulfill all that he promised? God tells Habakkuk, the righteous live by faith. You live by faith in the timing of God, knowing that his delays, his timing, when he acts, when he chooses not to, all of it is for the accomplishment of his purposes, the glory of his name, and the good of his people. You live by faith in hours of waiting. Let us rest our souls on the thought that our times are in God's hand. He knows when to act and when to wait. And you can be assured that his decision is driven by a love for his people to reveal for them his glory and to bring about their good. So let us beware of giving ourselves over to anxiety because we don't like the timing or we're worried about the timing or I need this to happen right now, God. The Lord knows what you need. And he will give you exactly what you need when you need it for your good and his glory. Secondly, God is sovereign over all rulers. Look what it says here. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Luke tells us that it was during the time that a decree had gone out to the world from Caesar Augustus. Now, Caesar Augustus is one of the most important of all of the Roman history, uh, Roman emperors in history. He was the adopted son of Julius Caesar and the one to be the first one who would unify Rome under a single governance. He was probably the most powerful human being in history up until the birth of the one his decree would help bring forth. One of the interesting things about Caesar Augustus is what he often referred to himself or would have inscripted upon his coins and and the, the propaganda that he would have sent out. He referred to himself as the Son of God. And established a, a cult of emperor worship where they would laud him as the Savior of the world. The Lord of the universe. Isn't it fascinating that God would decree to use the decree of the one who calls himself the Son of God the King of Kings, the Savior of the world, the Lord of the universe, to be the very one that he actually brings about, the true Son of God, the true King of Kings, the true Savior of the world. God's decree was to use a decree. Which all the more begins to explain the timing of God. Who chose to shame the greatest ruler of the world at this time, by using his own decree to be the means by which the true Son of God would be born. Just like the plagues were demonstrations of God's sovereignty over Pharaoh and his power over their false gods in the first exodus, so now God was demonstrating once again his sovereignty over another ruler of the earth. Originally called Octavian, Augustus had emerged as the chief ruler of Rome. After a bloody civil war, he had conquered all of the the opposing claimants, the last one being Mark Antony, 
who he defeated at the Battle of Actium in, in 31 BC. And Mark Antony would go on to commit suicide not long after that. And with that, he had full power over all of the empire, something that his adopted father longed for, but would not be able to take with his brutal murder. And we see that what he did was after he took over all of the empire, he established prefects or governors over major portions of his empire. And we see one of them here, Quirinius, who was the governor over Syria. Another one of these that would later on, as these prefects and governance got a little bit smaller, eventually that, that prefect would get moved into the Judea area, into to Caesarea, Philippi. And there we would see another governor be raised up in just a little bit, a guy by the name of Pontius Pilate. But this was the first one here, Quirinius. And we're told that Quirinius had received this decree from Caesar and chooses to go and to have a registration where all of the individuals, all of those within the Syrian uh, precinct, those within Judea and those other surrounding regions, would have to go to their place of birth, to their place of lineage. Now, this decree and this registration was probably put forth in around 8 BC. It's important to note that James Usher, who was the one who created the 8, uh, BC AD system, was slightly off with his calculations by about four years. As four or five years, as, as Christ was most likely born uh, between 5 and 4 BC. And so this decree was put forth in 8 BC. And we know this because these decrees were actually issued every 14 years. And the second one we have happened in 6 AD. And so you just count that back 14 years and you get 8 BC was when this one was given. And so it, it took about two or three years for this, the fullness of this decree and this registration to permeate out among the empire, which... Hey, they had snail mail back then. You know, there wasn't any email or, or you know, 24-7 news to tell you what the emperor just put out for everyone. Not only that, but the Jews were not real fans of Roman taxation. So there are lots of reasons why this would have taken some time for it to actually happen. And there are many scholars who think that Quirinius' choice of, of having a registration was actually a way of, of encouraging the Jews to do the taxation because it gave them an opportunity to do so under their tribal lineage. And so it was a way of respecting their culture, of respecting their tribal lineage. So he chooses to write this registration so that they will go and do so within their, uh, their homelands, where, where they come through from their, their lines of heritage. And so they would say there was no taxation without regist registration as opposed to representation with us. Now what's so fascinating is in Caesar's decree and in Quirinius' registration to help bring about that decree, God is working through all of that. You think Caesar, like Augustus was going, I bet there's two people in Nazareth that need to get to Bethlehem. How am I going to make that happen? No. Augustus is thinking, I have a massive army that I need to feed and a huge empire that I need to build. And you know what that, ha that requires? Taxes. So I'm going to tax the empire. And Quirinius is saying, 
these Jewish people are going to revolt because they always do that against it. So I'm going to try to figure out a way that will appease them and be culturally sensitive to bring about their taxation. These men are not thinking about God in the least. It's not the true one. And yet every decision they make is only bringing about the eternal plan of God. The overruling providence of God appears in this simple fact. He orders all things in heaven and earth, including the earth's rulers, to accomplish his purposes. Proverbs 21.1 makes this clear. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Wherever he will. Not wherever he can. Wherever he's allowed to. No, wherever he will, he turns the streams of the hearts of kings. He overruled the time when Augustus decreed the taxing. He directed the enforcement of the decree that in such a way that Mary would arrive perfectly at Bethlehem when the days were accomplished that she could be, that she could give birth to Jesus. Jesus had to be born in Bethlehem. Or God is a liar. Because God said the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem Ephrathah. But they're out of Nazareth. And look at what God chooses to do. Through the decrees of men, he brings forth his decrees from eternity. Little did these men think that they were helping to lay the foundation of a kingdom that would one day crush all others. And that's precisely what they were doing. Were they meant for evil to bring about the taxation of an oppressed people? God meant for good. He meant for good. In all of their actions, in all of their decrees, in all of their registrations and censuses, God was the captain directing the streams of their heart to perfectly accomplish everything he wanted. As Christians, we should never be greatly moved or distressed by the conduct of the rulers of the earth. That doesn't mean we don't look at their wickedness and, be, and despise it and say that that's wrong and call them out for their injustice. But we never be unsettled by men. <clears throat> don't grow unsettled by the actions of men because you serve one who is higher than they. You belong to one who is higher than they. You belong to one who can, they can do nothing apart from his will saying, that will happen, but it will be for, my, for the good of my people and my glory. Every decision that is ever made by man, God does for one of two purposes. Either to reveal his glory through judgment on a people, or to reveal his glory through blessing of a people. Either way, he's getting the glory. Because he will judge wicked rulers and he will bless nations with righteous ones. But God's the one who does it. We must look with an eye of faith to the hand in heaven, overruling all that the leaders of this world do for our eternal good and his ultimate glory. Whether they are a president, a senator, a congressman, an Augustus, a Quirinius, a Pontius Pilate, a Darius, a Cyrus, a Xerxes, or anyone else who should call themselves a leader. They are nothing more than creatures. They are nothing more than creatures who with all of their power can do nothing but what God allows them to do and nothing which is not ultimately carrying out His perfect will. And when the rulers of this world seek to set themselves against the Lord, let us remember the words of Ecclesiastes 
If you see a province, the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher and there is a higher one over them. God takes note when men act evil. And yet even in their evil actions, he uses it for the good of his people. He is the God of all history. He's sovereign over all time. He's sovereign over every ruler. And verse 3 brings all of the more closer to us as we see that he is sovereign over all persons. Sovereign over all persons. Look at verse 3. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. This decree was not just for one tribe of Israelites. It wasn't just for the descendants of David. This is for every single person that lived within the Roman Empire. And we are told that every one of them went to be registered each into his own town. Now, think of how massive a scale this movement was. This is no small thing. This is a massive moment in human history where an entire empire is shuffled around to bring about a taxation. This was not God just moving Joseph and Mary. Think about how easy that would have been. Like, think about this. God could literally just send Gabriel again and say, hey, the time's getting close. You guys should go to Bethlehem. Thanks, Lord. There's the story. This isn't hard for God to overcome. God's not like up there going, man, i got to really figure out how to figure out how I'm going to make this happen. He can act at any moment to make this very simple. And yet, he chooses to work through a decree that will shift an entire nation around to get two people to Bethlehem. How many lives were upended by this? How many ripples of human history were created from this one drop into it? Think about how many lives were changed in this moment. Uprooted, going, traveling, moving. For instance, it was this massive movement that created the problem Joseph and Mary had when they got to Bethlehem. Which was what? There's no room here. There's no room here. Well, why is that significant? Maybe so that God, in profound, amazing glory, would have it that the only place left for them would be an animal stable, a fitting place for the Lamb of God to be born, where He could be wrapped in swaddling cloth. That which would be done for a newborn Lamb. He moves an entire empire around for that. So there would be no room for them. So that the Son of Man can be born into the lowest of places. As the eternal Lamb of God. All people are being moved by God exactly where He wanted them in this time. The same God that is sovereign over time, that turns the hearts of kings and rulers, is the same God who sustains the sparrow in the air, the Bible says. And I love what Jesus says. If he cares for the sparrow, how much more so you? 
He is sovereign over your life. And maybe you've struggled with that sometimes. But I think the more that you look back over your life, you won't. Because you'll begin to see how step by step, God has gotten you right where you are today. And how little by little, things happened. Weird things happened. Meetings, changes, how one meeting turns into a marriage one day. And how one event turns into a lifelong friendship. And how one stumbling into a place led to a career field. And how one getting invited to church led to a lifetime and an eternity of salvation. It's because God was in control. Just like He was over Caesar. Just like He was over the time. He was in control over you. And every circumstance is along the way. None of it was coincidence. It was all God's doing. When people think of God's sovereignty, sometimes people think, it, well, that, are you trying to say like people are robots? No. This is what we call the doctrine of compatibilism. That God in His absolute sovereignty works through the agency of man in such a way that when man chooses... Freely, I think I'm making every choice with no, no oppression or anything on me. I'm just making a choice. This is what I want to do. Every choice man makes will always fall in line exactly with what the will of God has decreed. It's mind-blowing. It should be. That's why at the very end of Romans 11, what is Paul saying? How incompre- incomprehensible are your ways, O oh God? They're mind-blowing. That you can work in such a way that I am freely choosing, acting, running, and I will always end up exactly where you've decreed me to be. If you don't believe that that's how that works, that you think that you can just outrun God's plan and purposes, you just need to go read Jonah. You can't outrun the sovereignty of God. Even in running away from God, he ran right where he wanted. That's a powerful reality that we need to remember this great truth. Psalm 115.3 Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. Nothing will stop Him. This God is the God who has governed all of human history. Why? Because it's His story. From creation to consummation it is His story. It is His story for His glory. When you look at the annals of the history of mankind, you are merely seeing the outworking of a sovereign God who is working all things for the accomplishment of His purposes, the glory of His name, and the good of His people. And there are three responses which should flow from our knowledge that our God is sovereign over human history. The first that you should respond to God's sovereignty is with trust. With trust. Because God governs history, He's always in control. And so no matter how dark things may seem, no matter how bad it may look, God is in control. So trust Him. You can trust God because He's in control. He's not helpless. That's why I can put all my trust in Him. Because I know He actually can do something. That's why we pray that God will save people. Why? Because He can actually do something. 
We trust Him that He can do exactly as He pleases, when He pleases, and so we can trust Him even in the darkest hour, knowing He has a purpose. Secondly, we rest. Because God governs history, I never need to concern myself with the outcome of the world or live a life as if He's been knocked off the throne. My friends, many of you, if you haven't already, will go out and you'll vote on Tuesday. We live in a world that has made voting, it's, it's like electing the Messiah. Who's going to save us and who's going to kill us? And both sides feel that way. You should vote. It's the right thing to do. We've got an amazing responsibility. And God has given you principles in His Word by which should govern how you act, choose, vote, live, everything else. But when you go and vote this week, how about you go home and rest? Because no matter what happens, your God reigns. And He's in control. And He's sovereign. And His will will be accomplished. And He is perfect in His purposes. And perfect and faithful in his promises. He's in control. And no matter who gets sitting in office, I know who's on the throne. And that's what matters. The sovereignty of God is the pillow by which we rest our heads at night when the world seems dark and weary. I know he's in control. And in that, I can sleep well. Lastly, rejoice. Rejoice. Because God governs history. You can rest your head knowing that our God will level mountains, part seas, change the hearts of kings, move entire empires around for the sake of blessing His people. There is no barrier by which God will keep His people from Him. Nothing. He will split entire seas to get you where He wants you. Move entire empires to bring blessing to His people. So rejoice. Rejoice knowing that everything God works in your life is for your ultimate good. Nothing can thwart His will. And because of that, we can believe with all of our hearts Paul's words in Romans 8.28. All things, are, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. How can we know that? How can we be absolutely sure that that's real and true? And the answer is, is because all things work together for the good of God's people. Because He's the one working it. He's the one behind all of it. He controls everything so that even those bad things, because remember, all things isn't just good things, it's all things. The only reason I can know that things which don't look very good are working for my ultimate good is because my God is in control. He is sovereign over all things. And nothing will thwart His will. What a God we have who is in no way absent or distant, but always working for the accomplishment of His purposes, the glory of His name, and the good of His people. Day by day, He governs the world to bring about His perfect plan. To the day and the time that He chooses to return to consummate the history of man once and for all in the glories of His Son, Jesus Christ. So no matter what tomorrow brings, your God is in control. 
And so you sing with all your heart as you leave this place today. This is my Father's world. Oh, never let me forget that though the wrong seem all so strong, God is the ruler yet. He is in control. What a God we have. Trust, rest, and rejoice, Christians. God is the king of the earth. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the truth of the reality of your sovereignty, that we can trust in you, knowing that you are in control, that we can rest in you, knowing that all things are working for our good, and that we can rejoice knowing that, God, you have a plan and purpose in all things, that even when we can't see it, we know that there's a glorious outcome. We know how it ends. We know the, the, the way that everything will end with you winning and a new heaven and earth being established. And so, Father, today I, I just pray that in the midst of 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 turmoil uh, and division in this country in in the time of elections where people have have set it up as a throne to make it more than it ought to have ever been uh, that that God you would point our hearts to the reality that you reign you are sovereign you are our king you are on the throne and nothing or nor no one will ever knock you off of it God, that you would cause us to be a people who find confidence and hope knowing that you are in control, that your kingdom has been established, that it will never be shaken, that our times are in your hands, that you will always be there exactly when we need you, that your promises will be faithful and fulfilled, that your word will never return void because you govern history in such a way as to make sure that everything you have decreed from eternity past will come to be for the accomplishment of your will, the glory of your name, and the good of us, your people. Lord, help us look to you and be reminded day by day that you are our ruler, that you reign, and that you will be perfect in accomplishing everything you promised. What a glorious hope we have in you, God. Let us live in light of it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.